0: Your lecturer is Daniel Breer. Dr. Breer is an associate professor of philosophy at Illinois State University. He is the recipient of several teaching awards, including the outstanding university teaching award for pre-tenured faculty. What if you had a magical ring that did one incredible thing? It made you invisible. Would having this ring, would having the power of invisibility change you in any way? Or would having the ring bring out your true nature? Be honest. What would you do with a ring of invisibility? In Plato's masterwork, The Republic... Glaucon, who in real life was Plato's older brother, tells us the story of a man who found such a ring. His name was Gyges, and he was a shepherd. After an earthquake, Gyges ventured into a chasm torn into the earth, where he found the corpse of a giant who was wearing nothing but a single golden ring. Gyges snatched the ring and returned to his flock. At the next meeting of shepherds, Gyges wore his new golden ring. In his boredom, he twisted it this way and that, and when he turned it in a certain direction, he became invisible. As Glaucon tells it, as soon as Gyges realized this, he arranged to become one of the messengers sent to report to the king. On arriving there, he seduced the king's wife, attacked the king with her help, killed him, and in this way, took over the entire kingdom. Glaucon thinks that everyone, when it comes down to it, would behave like Gyges. Everyone, no matter how apparently good, no matter how seemingly just, would ultimately succumb to the temptations of the ring. As he puts it, no one, it seems, would be so incorruptible that he would stay on the path of justice or bring himself to keep away from other people's possessions and not touch them, when he could take whatever he wanted from the marketplace with impunity go into people's houses and have sex with anyone he wished, kill anyone he wished, and do all the other things that would make him like a god among humans. Glaucon thinks this thought experiment provides strong evidence that no one is just willingly, but only when compelled, and that injustice is far more profitable than is justice. And many philosophers sense have thought that the story of Gyges Ring is a powerful way to frame the question, why be moral? Why be just when, after all, injustice and immorality seem so profitable? Socrates, perhaps speaking on behalf of Plato, responds to Glaucon and tries to show that it is in fact always in our interest to be just rather than unjust. But that's not quite our concern here. Our concern is not directly with ethics and justice. Our concern is with what Gaiji's story and the Ring of Invisibility have to tell us about the dark side of human nature. When you thought about what you do with a magical Ring of Invisibility, what did you consider? Did you consider doing something you know you really aren't supposed to? Did you consider stealing something? Did you consider manipulating someone? Did you consider something darker? Glaucon bets you did. But maybe you didn't because, you know, you're worried that invisibility isn't enough. You've seen crime shows and you know all about crime scene investigation and DNA and all that sort of thing. And so maybe you've been hesitating because, let's just be honest, you still think you might get caught. So let's sharpen things a bit. What if you knew absolutely knew for certain that you could get away with anything? What if the ring didn't just make you invisible? What if it made you utterly and absolutely undetectable? What then? If you could get away with anything, no consequences, no punishments, no chance of getting found out, nothing, is there anything immoral you'd do? If you could get away with it, is there anything you'd do That you'd be willing to call evil? Despite Glaucon's confidence, you might want to resist the thought that you'd do something, anything immoral, let alone evil. But what if you just thought about doing something awful? What if you just considered it, if only for a moment, and found yourself entertaining the possibility seriously? You don't have to tell me anything. It can remain your little secret, but be honest. Did some dark thought, some dark desire flicker, if only briefly, in your mind? What if you thought about killing someone, you know, just to get them out of the way? Or what if you had something you wanted, something you know other people wouldn't understand or accept, and the idea of the ring gave you permission just for a moment to think about how you might go about obtaining the object of your desire? What would entertaining such thoughts and having such desires say about you? What would it say about any of us? My bet, which is different from Glaucon's, is that if you've been really honest, this little thought experiment has begun to pry open a part of you that is, at the very least, acquainted with evil and immorality. After all, doesn't it seem like someone who is perfectly good, someone whose character is flawless, wouldn't even entertain the kinds of thoughts Glaucon is sure you have? And if all of us have a side that flirts with evil and immorality, then, well, it sure seems like we all have a dark side. In this course, we're going to explore that dark side. Now, talking about the dark side might seem a bit silly, though. It might even call to mind the melodrama of a certain Jedi and his father. But as we'll see in this course, the dark side of human nature is serious business. It's that aspect of ourselves that leaves wreckage in its wake and wallows in ignorance and suffering. It's that facet of human nature that's so mysterious that we feel drawn to decipher it. The dark side is our fragile underbelly. It's our negative but all-too-human side. And I say all-too-human for a reason. It's not enough to treat the dark side as though it were some bizarre quality that only manifests itself in the acts of criminals or psychopaths. In fact, the idea that will drive us throughout our series of lectures is that we can't fully appreciate what it means to be human unless we understand and come to terms with our dark side. But why think we can't understand what it means to be human without grappling with our dark side? Wouldn't we do better to look at what's good about us? Wouldn't we understand ourselves better by focusing on the better angels of our nature? Well, there's certainly something to this line of thought. In fact, we might say it's what has driven the emergence of positive psychology in recent decades. For positive psychology, what's centrally important is human flourishing, not human dysfunction. And so, to understand what it means to be human, it's most important to look at the factors that help people lead meaningful, fulfilling lives and to figure out how to help people cultivate their best features, their best tendencies, so that they can thrive in all aspects of their lives. I have to admit that I'm a big fan of positive psychology in related fields like virtue ethics that focus on studying character, happiness, and virtue. And the truth is that I'm pretty optimistic about human nature in general. But focusing only on our strengths would be to romanticize ourselves. Focusing only on our strengths would be distorting and dangerous, because it would distract us from facts about ourselves that we have to grapple with in order to lead meaningful, fulfilling, and happy lives. In this sense, studying the dark side of human nature is not to engage in a kind of morbid navel-gazing. It is instead a necessary complement to the good life seeing ourselves for who we truly are, acknowledging the entire range of our humanity in all its sordid glory, well, that's the only way we can be honest enough with ourselves to make real progress toward living the kinds of lives we desire. And if we're fans of the Socratic insistence that the unexamined life is not worth living— it seems fair to say that part of what we have to examine in our lives is the dark side we're so often willing to ignore. Many of the thinkers we'll meet in this course agree. For instance, the Stoic philosopher Seneca and the Buddhist philosopher Shantideva recognize that we ignore the dark side at our peril. To flourish, they note, we have to confront our dark tendencies. We have to develop patience, they urge, partly so that we can counteract our tendencies toward frustration and anger. We have to cultivate compassion, they argue, partly so that we can resist egotistical and narcissistic passions. We have to confront the dark side, they recognize, so that we can grow, so that we can be happy, so that we can live meaningful lives. We have to confront the dark side so that we are not consumed by it. Focusing only on what's positive about us, or only on what we'd like to believe about ourselves, does not change the fact that beneath the surface there's something else. The dark side is that something else. It's the seething turmoil below the surface. When I do something I know I'm not supposed to do, I can rationalize it, or I can take responsibility for it. When I get angry, I can justify it, or I can question it. When I get evidence that what I believe is wrong, I can explain it away or I can look into it. With this in mind, consider one of my favorite quotations, a passage from the 17th century French theologian François Fenelon. In the passage, Fenelon uses the metaphor of light to talk about true self-awareness, which for him comes only through the action of God's grace. Here's what he says, "...as that light increases we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing from our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. But we must be neither amazed nor disturbed. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light we see them by waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. So long as there is no sign of cure, we are unaware of the depth of our disease. We are in a state of blind presumption and hardness, the prey of self-delusion. While we go with the stream, we are unconscious of its rapid course. But when we begin to stem it ever so little, it makes itself felt. When I first read them, Fenelon's words resonated strongly with me, because they insightfully described my own experience, when I started to reflect on my own failings, when I started to shine light into the dark places of my heart, I was horrified. When I realized I wasn't always right, when I realized that I was flawed in ways that held me back, when I realized that I was no better than those whom I reviled, well, you know what? I felt sick. I felt worse. Now, if I recoiled from what I realized, I was no better for it. I kept on being the flawed and faulty person I had been. I continued in the metaphor to wallow in the darkness. But if I recognized that I wasn't actually worse for having seen myself for who I was, if I recognized that I now had an opportunity to take care of what I had previously failed to see clearly, well, then I didn't feel completely hopeless. Sometimes I even felt empowered. But what Fenelon also insightfully points out is that actually doing something is hard. It's easy to continue as usual. We might hate ourselves for becoming angry when we know we shouldn't, but it's easy to keep being angry. Doing something about our anger is hard. It's like moving upstream after we've been flowing downstream for so long. Or consider it another way. Maybe you have a great place to live. You really like it and you're really comfortable living there. But the basement is unfinished, and you haven't been down there much. When you do go, you realize that there's some sketchy stuff, but you justify it. The house is old, you'll take care of it later, you know, that sort of thing. But then one day, you really have to do something down there. And so you take your flashlight with you. And then when you shine the light all over, you realize that you have some serious problems. Things are a lot worse than you thought. Of course, they aren't actually worse. They've been that way for a long time. But now you know how bad they are. And you're horrified. So what are you going to do? You could continue to ignore the problems. You could continue to rationalize things. Or you could acknowledge how bad things are. But even if you do that, there's another step. You actually have to do the work. Make the phone calls. Get your hands dirty and your brow sweaty. And you know, that's hard. In this course, we're going to start shining some light on the dark side to reveal ourselves for what we really are, and we'll even consider how we might at least start the hard work of improving ourselves, the hard work of moving upstream. Now, as I mentioned for Phenelon, this metaphorical light is associated with God's goodness and grace. The metaphorical light will be shining as a little different. We'll shine light by exploring important questions, considering powerful ideas, and following the lead of influential thinkers from various traditions. We'll look carefully at the nature of evil itself, addressing such questions as, what is evil? What makes an action evil? What makes a person evil? And are there such things as evil feelings and desires? We'll also consider the notion of sin. Is sin the same thing as wrongdoing and vice, or is it something more than that? Is it something we do or something we suffer from? Reflecting on sin will then encourage us to consider what our dark thoughts, our twisted desires, and even our worst dreams tell us about ourselves. Are we responsible for our dark desires, even if they're fleeting? Could a morally perfect person have immoral thoughts? And why do people think about hurting and even killing others? We'll take up all these questions and more In the lectures that follow. But the dark side of human nature is about more than evil, immorality, and sin. It's also about the human condition, about the essential and often unpleasant facts of our existence in this world. What this means is that when we talk about the dark side of human nature, we'll be tracing two important threads. The first is related to evil and immorality, while the second is related to the human condition more generally. In opening the lecture with the myth of Gaiji's ring, I hope I helped you see how the dark side is related to questions about evil, sin, and even dark ideation and desire. But it might not be completely clear how the dark side is related to the human condition more generally. So to help with that, let's consider another story. This is a story we hear in various forms in the Jain and Buddhist traditions. A version of it even appears in the great Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. It's an allegory or a parable often referred to as the man in the well. Here's how it goes. Once there was a man who roamed from region to region, forced by poverty and circumstance to find a new home. As he made his way, he came to a great forest, dense with trees, and he lost his way. In his disoriented wandering, he stumbled into the path of a charging elephant. Frightened, he dashed away, narrowly escaping, only to find himself standing in the face of something far more terrible, a sword-wielding demoness, fearsome and dreadful. Falling back, arms whirling, feet slipping, the man fled in terror, looking "'everywhere for a place to hide, for a way to escape. "'And then he saw it, a great towering tree. "'With hope finally pushing against his fear, "'he rushed headlong toward the tree, "'running faster than he thought anyone could. "'As he reached its base, he jumped to grab its lowest branches "'so that he could pull himself up and out of danger. "'But the tree was too tall and the branches too high. "'He tried to shimmy up the tree, but it was too wide.' Standing before the great tree, his hope faltered as he heard the approaching rumble of the elephant and the ghastly screech of the demoness who was nearly upon him now. But there it was, not another tree reaching up into the heavens, but an abandoned well plunging deep into the ground, just feet from him. So in his panic, In his great fear of what he would have to face if he could not hide, he flung himself headlong into the darkness of the well. What he realized at that moment must have been much like what I realized when, as a teenager, I stupidly jumped out of the back of a moving truck. As I leapt over the tailgate in fear of what was happening in the bed, I realized that I had made a terrible mistake. But whereas I could do nothing but fall and hit the pavement— Our man had a chance. He realized that his fall could mean his death, and so he reached out to the walls of the well, and as luck would have it, he managed to snag some tangled vegetation and stop his fall. Dangling with terror above and the unknown below, he clung to the wall of the well. As his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he could begin to make out the bottom of the well, But what he first thought was the ground, he soon realized was really a mass of writhing snakes stirred up by his presence in the well. And as he gazed upon this terrible sight, he saw that in the middle of this twisted mass was a great python whose jaws were open unnaturally wide, as though awaiting his fall. Dumbstruck with terror, our man's attention turned back toward the mouth of the well as he heard the elephant madly pacing its edges, shaking the walls of the well and bringing his attention to the tangle of reeds that had stopped his fall. How long would they last? Perhaps they would have lasted long enough if it weren't for the two mice that were now gnawing at their roots. What would he do? At the moment this question flickered through his mind, our man heard the elephant once again as it smashed itself against the great tree and dislodged of all things a honeycomb which tumbled into the darkness of the well right onto him, sending furious bees into his hair, onto his face and over his arms and hands, which clung still to that failing tangle of root and reed. And then, though suspended in the gloom and set upon by bees, With anger rumbling above and terror writhing below, our man caught a taste of the sweet honey as it dripped from the honeycomb down through his hair and across his tightly shut eyes until it finally reached his lips. And all he could think of in that moment was not the danger he was in, but how he might get more of that delicious honey. The story of the man in the well is a parable or an allegory, not a thought experiment. So what does it mean? Since its roots are in the Indian tradition, it's partly an allegory about samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth. The man's roaming from region to region and his lost wandering through the forest represent the cycle of death and rebirth. The man himself represents that part of us, whatever it is exactly, that's trapped in this cycle. The elephant is death itself, and the demoness is infirmity, old age, and disease. The man flees in fear of these toward the tree, which represents liberation from samsara, liberation into a place where death and infirmity cannot reach. The man, however, can't attain such salvation, because he isn't well prepared. The man cannot climb the tree, and so he dives headlong into the well which itself represents the human condition, what it means to be a human being who has not yet been liberated from the cycle of death and rebirth. The well is filled with snakes, which represent our desires and passions, our attachments and aversions. The great python in the middle represents where we're headed if things don't take a turn for the better, a hellish rebirth, worse even than the well. The tangled roots and reeds represent the limited time we all have in this life, while the mice represent the wearing away of that time. And the bees, they represent our pains and everyday troubles. The honey, well, it represents the seemingly satisfying pleasures that distract us from our troubles. The honey is not something good. It's something that encourages us to ignore the seriousness of our situation, the honey causes the man to forget the urgency of getting out of the well. In the Mahabharata, after telling a version of this parable, the respected advisor Vidura tells us that wise men know that the course of rebirth is such, and so they seek to escape from it. They seek to escape the darkness of the well and rise above the troubles of the human condition. What's nice about the parable of the man in the well is that it helps us further clarify the dark side of human nature. The dark side isn't just about immorality and evil, or even dark thoughts and twisted desires. It's also about the human condition. It's about the dark places we find ourselves in as human beings. And what are some of these dark places? One of them is what we might call the shadow of death what drives the man in the parable is partly a fear of being mortal and frail. He flees from death only to find that he cannot escape it. The man in the well also suffers greatly, and that seems to be part of what it means to be human, even if the goal is to escape such suffering. What's more, the man remains trapped in the well, at least in part, because of his own failings. He's confused about the goodness of the honey, Perhaps he's ignorant or self-deceived, or perhaps he's unable or unwilling to resist the temptation of the honey. Maybe he knows he shouldn't focus so much on it, but, well, he just can't follow through. In this course, we'll be looking at the shadow of death, the nature of suffering, and various character flaws, because they are all aspects, dark as they are, of the human condition. So, with the help of Gaiji's ring and the man in the well, we should have a handle on the twofold nature of the subject we'll be tackling in this course. On the one hand, the dark side relates to our tendencies toward immorality and evil. And on the other hand, it relates to the problematic aspects of the human condition. With that in mind, let me close by saying a few words about how we'll approach our subject. I'm a philosopher. And so I think of this course as primarily a philosophy course, in which we'll consider arguments, puzzle over thought experiments, explore big ideas, analyze concepts, and engage with what other philosophers, past and present, have had to say. That said, this philosophy course might be a little different from what you've encountered in the past, primarily because it's cross-cultural in nature. What does it mean to say that the course is cross-cultural? Well, to start, let me point out that cross-cultural philosophy is not the same thing as comparative philosophy. Comparative philosophy is about studying the differences and similarities between very different philosophical traditions. Typically, this involves comparisons between Western philosophy and non-Western traditions, such as the Indian or Chinese philosophical traditions. Comparative philosophy is important, insofar as it treats different philosophical traditions as worthy of study, and because it's useful to note how traditions match up with each other. But comparative philosophy is limited. We don't just want to know whether some thinker in one tradition is like another thinker in a different tradition. As philosophers, we want to engage with the actual arguments and ideas found in different traditions as a way to reach the truth as a way to make progress on philosophical problems and maybe even to discover new problems our home traditions haven't even recognized. As the influential scholar Jay Garfield puts it, cross-cultural philosophy places all philosophical traditions on the same playing field and treats them all as equal partners. Rather than looking at the differences and similarities between the familiar and the alien, as comparative philosophy does, Cross-cultural philosophy emphasizes that philosophy is a universal human enterprise. The philosopher Mark Sideritz calls his brand of cross-cultural philosophy fusion philosophy. Fusion philosophy is like fusion music or fusion cuisine. Fusion music uses the elements of one musical tradition to solve problems or develop insights in another musical tradition and fusion cuisine combines elements from different culinary traditions to form something distinctive something kind of new and really tasty likewise fusion philosophy uses the elements of various philosophical traditions to solve philosophical problems and develop insights that might have been unavailable without blending tradition in this course we're going to do fusion philosophy in fact we've already been doing it. In this lecture alone, we've considered two stories from two different traditions in a unified attempt to understand what we mean by the dark side of human nature. I think this fusion approach is especially useful in a course like this because it helps us see humanity as fully as possible from many different perspectives, while allowing us to make progress toward finding real answers Answers that will have a better chance of applying across cultures and times. Now, since you're also going to be an active member of this cross-cultural conversation, I'm not always going to spell out the lessons for you. Often, I'm going to encourage you to reach your own conclusions, even if I offer some suggestions here and there, and even though every once in a while I'll make it clear where I stand on some issue or other but the idea is for us to engage in a great conversation with a wide range of thinkers from different places and times. Thinking about the dark side of human nature has fascinated me for decades, and that's partly because I've experienced firsthand some aspects of the dark side, as I imagine you have as well. So our subject isn't merely theoretical. There's a practical dimension to every lecture, to every one of our discussions. And we don't want to lose track of that. In this course, we want to understand and then start to come to terms with the dark side of human nature. With, that is, the dark side of ourselves.